Hello and welcome to the Rest is Entertainment Questions Edition. I am Marina Hyde. Hi, I'm Richard Osborne. Welcome to our Questions and Answers Edition. You've got an apology I, to make. I have got a self-mandated apology, fortunately, because it could have been mandated by someone far more serious than myself. As I was leaving, having recorded this podcast last week, I was thinking... Why did we appeal to people to tell us their stories of if they've been on a jury with a celebrity, okay? Even if they'd done it, it would be a contempt of court. For us to broadcast it, I mean, I really? actually think we might have committed an incitement towards contempt of court last week. You know, we don't want to go to prison. I There's a lot... Yeah, I don't mind. I don't, you know, if, you think see, prison, I, if you think prison scares me, then you don't know me. <laughs> see, I think... Justify a lot of things in life by saying, oh, I'd be fine, I went to boarding school. But I think the, the <laughs> points of difference with boarding school would be the bits I had the problems with. But I didn't go to boarding school, so I don't, for me, it would all be new. Mm, it, would yeah. all be, it would all be a novelty. I'd, I'd, yeah, well, it would be a great podcast. But Also, I'd like the, I'd like the court case. Yeah. Because they're not really going to send us to prison, and it'd be really, really good publicity. There is actually no space in prison, so perhaps the podcast too might... <laughs> We might just be out on sort of... Honestly, if we were in prison, we'd be doing a podcast like every day. Yes. <laughs> the rest is prison. Yeah, it would be an interesting listen, actually. But, by the way, I got a huge amount of messages from people who said they had been on juries with celebrities, and now I can't say any of them. You shouldn't actually even allude to them, because even that, all of those people have com committed yeah. contempt of court. But the key thing is, I'm not frightened. Absolutely. The week's come and get me plea is to the police. Absolutely. This yeah. week's come yeah. and get me plea Bring is to on. the police. And also, try me in a court of law with the gladiators as the jury. I'm happy to do it, and I will name well, each they, and every well, one of them. I bet you are, because they'd certainly acquit you after all the publicity you've given. <laughs> right. All right, should we do some questions, Richard? Yeah, let's see Shall that. We? Yeah, by the way, also after last week's one, <laughs> so many, we talked about what could crime writers uh, commit the perfect murder. So many crime writers and Agatha Christie's great-great-grandson pitching me perfect murders as well. It no, turns out everyone's brilliant. thinking about how to commit the perfect murder all the time, <laughs> but no one's doing it. Thank goodness. Um Okay, I have a question for you, Marina. It is for, I say I have a question for you, Alex Svensson. Uh, that's a strong name, isn't it? Very strong name. Alex Svensson. You can name a character after Alex Svensson, couldn't you? You could do. Um, what happened to the Western, asked Alec, once the biggest genre in Hollywood for a decade and now nothing? Why do some genres simply disappear and would it happen to superhero films which seem to be the Western of the past 20 years? I think that's a very good comparison, actually, between the two genres. And what happened to the Western by sort of popular belief is... There was a film, which you all have heard of, because it's it became a sort of byword for enormous flops, um, Heaven's Gate, which is a Michael Cimino film. It's the film he did after The Deer Hunter when he was riding very, very high. It became a hugely troubled production. It was massively expensive. And what it crucially did was it collapsed not just its studio, United Artists, a storied and amazing sort of Hollywood studio that was had a huge pedigree. It collapsed the genre of the Western. Oh, wow. And it basically collapsed what was called the new Hollywood, which was all these kind of young independent filmmakers um, kind of who were outside the studio system were making these kind of experimental films. And, you know, obviously everyone from sort of Scorsese, Coppola, in this case, Cimino. And really after that, what it did is it, it pulled people back. These auteurs who'd gone off and kind of existed almost without oversight people thought right now we need proper oversight we're going to be right on top of them and the people who sort of won in a way were the nerds the sort of however brilliant they are the sort of Spielbergs and the Lucases who were able to stick to budgets didn't do kind of crazy things like Francis Ford Coppola did on Apocalypse Now where he was kind of borrowing helicopters from the Philippine Air Force and it was just a kind of chaotic famously chaotic shoot so that's what happened to the Westerns and every now and then it kind of you know you'd have a Western that would come out like Unforgiven yeah. um, I don't know am I calling Young Guns a Western I guess I yeah. am pretend to humor yeah, yeah I am and then uh, Django Unchained I guess was a yeah. sort of t version of a kind of subversive version of a, we a western 
In terms of superhero movies, yes, I do think that the same thing will ultimately happen to superhero movies because there's a point at which you can't filter every story through that same prism. And Kevin Feige, who's the head of Marvel, always says, you know, we've got every genre. We've got She-Hulk, which is a legal drama. It's like, no, no, no. You've only, as we said before on this thing, you have one genre, which is superhero stories. And trying to sort of funnel the entire you know, range of human experience through that one kind of sort of way of doing it is it becomes very boring and people, you know, superhero fatigue is real. Mm. It has set in. And I think the trouble is, is that the studios have committed so completely to the genre and so many of the big things on their upcoming slates for the next kind of two years are within that genre. And they, for such a long time, thought of it almost less as kind of artistry and more as banking. It was such a reliable, it was the most reliable way to make money ever really in the history of Hollywood. Like, like buying whiskey. Off, yeah, yeah. And yes, and um, sequel after sequel made money and they're going to have to come up with something new because eventually people will get bored with these genres and it just doesn't work any longer. It'd be a good time to pitch a Western, in fact. It would be now be a great the time. Can but I the Western doesn't speak to us anymore as, a, as a, a genre, really, because we're not so close to that era and we don't see it in that same way. It just doesn't speak to a global world in the same... It's interesting why the superhero genre has been such a big deal in this time. But... Well, it's interesting. There's a movie... Oh, God, it's probably 10 years ago now that I thought this is the best idea for a movie of all time and did nothing in the end. And I thought, I wonder if that's because... Westerns were too far in the past. And that was Cowboys versus Aliens. Yes. Which is, I mean, is there a better... The moment whoever came up with that just thought, hold on, it's a cowboy movie, but aliens come down and the cowboys fight the aliens. They must have just gone, I mean, this is like Christmas. Every meeting they had on that, every studio must have gone, okay, what what have you got for us? And go, Cowboys versus Aliens. They go, okay, how much? It's a three-word pitch, yeah. How much? And yet, as you see, Richard, I, I must say I wasn't taken immediately by that pitch and what? I don't think it did anything. It did, yeah, it did nothing. Those genre mashup things, I think, actually work very, very rarely and in that case, unsurprisingly perhaps. You'd be the only meeting they had in that day. You'd be going, what? Cowboys versus Aliens? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, just keep talking because at the moment I've got three words and I don't like any of them really. <laughs> I don't mind cowboys. I don't mind aliens. I just don't want them to work together. I don't want them together. Exactly. I like steak. I like jelly. I don't like steak versus jelly. There's a show. Okay, this is your one. James Scott asks about Gogglebox. How much would people on Gogglebox be paid? Is it the same for all contestants or would their pay be based on screen time? I like contestants as a, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, gladiators. Oh, no, sorry. That's the wrong shape. <laughs> Let's just mention gladiators again. Uh, they are, it takes them about, they film it across two days, sort of 12 or 13 hours. So they're all paid for loss of earnings, different sums depending on how long they've been there. Not crazy sums, but not, you know, not nothing. But one of the key things is a few times a year, uh, the Gogglebox universe does adverts for products and some of the longest serving Gogglebox's get to do those adverts and for adverts they've paid the absolute kind of going rate which is a lot a lot of money exactly <laughs> so you know people are giving up an awful lot of employment opportunities to do that show and they're not allowed to exploit it outside of it you, you, you never see them on, on, on other shows and of course you can leave the Gogglebox universe and go on to other things, Scarlett Moffat being the, 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 yeah. the sort of best example who left and, you know, now now, now is a staple uh, on TV. But, yeah, I think it's um, – that's why so many of them have been there so long, so many of the, the much-loved ones. Um, it's back this week. Do you know what? Gogglebox constantly amazes me about how brilliant it is. Every time – you will never regret watching an episode of Gogglebox. You learn more about Britain from Gogglebox than pretty much any other TV show. If ever they do the news – 
you're like, oh, here we go. What, what have they got? You know, you just think, you know, when you watch Liz Truss in America embarrassing herself, you think, oh, God, I hope they do that. I on, hope they on, do on it. Yeah, but it's like a focus group for the whole of culture. It's like yeah. a live, ongoing focus group where you love the people. I always, almost always love the people in focus groups because yeah. I think it's a completely fascinating sort of science. But to know the characters in the focus yeah. group, it's so warm and clever and amazing is the best high concept thing ever and it's an enormous reference point now for for so many tv and film people as i was in a netflix meeting the other day for a script that this guy has written which is brilliant and it's got like a final scene which is a will he won't he and i was saying but i can just see this scene on Gogglebox with the welsh couple going oh no he's not going to is he oh he's going to oh my god oh don't oh he's going to <laughs> and the netflix was saying we think that all the time with scenes we think how really? how oh, would gosh, this how would this play on Gogglebox? it's very rare to have a show that's just is all good and i think uh, i think Gogglebox is one of those yeah what a cultural success right across the board fascinating there was a tweet once that said which men in our culture would you be completely comfortable in a room with and someone replied the Siddiqui's from Gogglebox. <laughs> You think, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Exactly that. Um, I, I have a question for, for you, Marina. This is from Paul. Thank you. We get so many questions and we sort of look through them. Occasionally one leaps out that I kind of think, I bet Marina will have a view on this. <laughs> so Paul asks, do you know how real are car registrations in films and dramas? I would love it if you could help me to stop fixating on this question. Every time there is a shot of car registration in a film or drama. Otherwise, I think it's time I sought therapy. Oh, Paul, I love you. And you're not alone, by the way. This is something that I don't want to... I want to say men in particular, but men in particular fixate over this, okay? Mm. I talked to someone to do in line of duty and they were like, we get so much communication from people saying, that Range Rover, that model could not have that registration plate, okay? Now... I, this is some. We're getting some, some real esoterica here, but the DVLA will issue what they call ghost plates. Okay, to just oh get God. rid of this ghost whole plates. problem. There's, yeah, there's a to format. get rid of yeah, go, un, they're unissued plates. Four dead chefs yeah. <laughs> compete against each other. Anyway, listen, I just uh, <laughs> ghost plates. this week on ghost plates. Okay, Fanny uh, Craddock. Okay. <laughs> I love that show. Okay. Please, can you hold that? Um, okay, so unissued plates. Now, I should say that this, there's also something that this reads across to, which is phone numbers in things. Mm. Now, phone numbers, historically, whenever you see an American show, they always say area code 555 because yeah. it doesn't exist. You know, I've got to tell you, if you run a New York number, people will try and call the Ghostbusters. Yeah. If, if you say who you're going to call, and they, they will try and call the Ghostbusters, they will try and call any number. A, a large number of people, many more than you think, will try and call any number that they see oh, yeah. on screen ever. Now, Ofcom have got a recommended 01623 code for really? all British TV. So, th anyway, so that's just a bit of a detour my on friend, things like my, that. My friend Tom Blakeson, who now produces The Wheel and lots of other quiz shows, he's the absolute quiz guru. He once, he did the... Um, when Armando Iannucci was doing the armistice election yeah. thing and they put a phone number on screen and he put Tom Blakeson's phone number on there for some reason, Tom said it did not stop ringing for weeks. It's for unbelievable. Weeks. It, was, it was literally on screen for like two seconds and he said everybody rang it. People ring in all the time, yeah. they, which is why you have to... Anyway, but the, with cars, um, manufacturers have higher fleets, which they will lend out, um, which is obviously cheaper, but it's why you sometimes see like 
quite kind of low down the chain coppers driving a really nice new Audi and you think well how's that happened but people really mind about this stuff they also mind about like people getting out of cars and not locking the doors they're like what I mean you know you're, you're trying to tell me this yeah. is a scene it's a rough area you're going in to talk to this person in this house about something they might have seen if you've not locked your car and it really takes them out of the moment so don't seek therapy Paul you're not alone you can find solace on many talk boards I will tell you that the absolute uh, boon now for editors who have that thing of oh you haven't locked your car yeah. is um, the beep beep <laughs> yeah. sound of an electric lock which they can just add on in post they go just. hold on he didn't lock his car oh god so stick on a beep beep yeah. and then we'll assume he's just done it with his uh, electric thing so it's a, it's a good question not unlocking was a big thing and then it was like no no yeah, no yeah. he's got one of those you know things yeah, you, yeah. yeah so it's all I was talking to an English actor recently who was working with a big name Hollywood actor and he had to take a phone call take a phone number on a phone call, write it down on a bit of paper for the Hollywood actor and the Hollywood actor then had to respond. So he took down the number, he just wrote down, blah, blah, just wrote down some numbers. And the big name Hollywood actor looks at the bit of paper and just looks up at this actor and he goes, what, what is this? And he goes, oh, I just wrote down a number. He goes, the number is supposed to be a New York number. You've absolutely, I'm out of the scene completely. You've absolutely lost me. And you're like, okay. What a complete dick. Yeah. Unusual in that line of work. Yes. So unusual. <laughs> Isn't it just? Okay, Richard, I think we should go to a break now. But when we come back, I'm going to ask you a question about discounted books in the daily deals on Amazon and things like that. Wow. Okay. Why does it make you think of me? <laughs> eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Richard, I have got a question for you. When an author's books are included in the Daily Deal on Amazon in the Kindle store at a reduced price, are you as the author or your agent involved in the decision or do Amazon determine the reduced price? It's a good question. In in general, Amazon will set their own price for a book. So, you know, if, if I have a new, new book out and the recommended retail price is £22, Amazon would almost always do it at £11. Yeah. It makes no difference to me if it's 11 or 22. They have to pay the same amount. It's just so they can get the most, most of the market. Your local bookshops, independent bookshops, cannot match that because they're paying rates, they're paying rent, they're providing you know service and all that kind of stuff. So if your local bookshop is selling them for 17, 18 pound, they are not ripping you off. That's the cheapest that they can possibly do it. If you feel it is worth your while paying an extra six or seven pound just so you've got an amazing shop full of amazing people on your high street, I think it's well worth Absolutely. it. Absolutely, always support yeah. if you can. Exactly, but either. Either way, the author is getting the same amount. Uh, and when it comes down to paperbacks, again, it'll be recommended price about £10. Amazon will do them for £4.50. Your local shop will do them for £8, some, something like that. And the author gets exactly the same. If you're talking about these daily deals and discounted things on Kindle, that is different. Amazon have to say to you, we want to make your book available for 99p or whatever it is. And if you want the publicity of that, you will do it. I've never, never ever discounted any of the Thursday Murder Club books on Kindle. They say uh, volume for vanity, price for sanity. Because you know, <laughs> if you if you do sell your book for ninety nine p, you can sell a lot of books. But the author is not making a penny, so the I author see. will make absolutely nothing. They will make pretty much nothing if you're charging three pound or or less. There's there's nothing there. So that's just for the publisher just going. This has run out of steam. You know, it might have been out for a year. You know, yeah. we're not going. We're not selling thousands and thousands a week, like on The Apprentice, when you know they start selling cupcakes for two pound right at the end of the task, yeah. just to get rid of them. So it's a good way of finding new authors. It's, for authors, it can work that someone can try out their work for ninety nine p and then go back into the back catalogue and buy the more expensive things. But by and large, if a book is discounted in a shop, the author gets full price. Those daily deals, when it's very very cheap, the author will get nothing at all. But I will say again and again and again that local bookshops do not have that luxury. You know, they work on fine margins and they provide a service that's above and beyond just sending you a book in a cardboard envelope. And nobody at an independent bookshop is grifting you. No. You know, they're really, they are literally mortified that you can find this cheaper somewhere else because other people have different business plans. And that's why they, by and large, try and give you the best customer service that they can. That's a very good question. That was from Kay, by the way. I'm sorry that I didn't say her name at the start. Uh, one for you, Marina, from... Uh, oh, this is a good name. One of these days, I'm going to name a character in a book after one of our questioners. Well, this uh, one's a good person. This one's a good So Rico Rianaldo writes in, Hey, Rico. What are your feelings on trigger warnings across all forms of entertainment? I get emails from my supermarket to opt out of receiving Mother's Day adverts in case it upsets me, which seems counterintuitive as by asking me to opt out, you have already triggered me by asking me about Mother's Day and bringing it to my attention. Thank you, Rico. I think that is a very good point. I must say I 
don't think that trigger warnings are a good thing. And the chief reason that I don't think they are is because they don't work. All the research suggests that they don't impact people's emotional responses to things. In fact, the forbidden fruit effect, as it were, might be actually causing people to and trigger warnings to have the completely opposite effect. And sometimes people call it the nocebo effect, where, you know, you've got a negative expectation of something because you've been told that it's going to be distressing, and therefore, it exacerbates distressing outcomes. There are many, many different studies on this that just say it doesn't work. And I think it's therefore a sort of piece of performative mumbo jumbo that is probably doing more harm than good. But people go along with them and the obligation to do it because they fear that they might be being shamed as mean or perhaps they feel they need to, it's a sort of in-group signifier, isn't it? That, you know, Mm. certain type of people always will do a content warning and make you feel that, you know, I just want to show that I'm a person who takes other people's feelings into consideration. But as it turns out, you know, scientifically speaking, you're not necessarily doing that at all. In fact, you might be doing quite the opposite. But I suppose on a wider philosophical thing, you know, I know life is hard and awful things happen, but I do feel that part of the journey is sort of being confronted by these things and learning to get past them. You know, as you say, Rico, you've been talked about about the Mother's Day. The supermarkets had to mention Mother's Day to you to ask you if you want to opt out of the Mother's Day marketing. I don't think people are particularly upset by Mother's Day marketing, actually. And I think that it's created a sort of weird issue um, where there needn't be one. And that, I think, is generally what trigger warnings do. The only trigger warnings we used to have back in the 80s were Simon Bates on the beginning of VHSs telling it was an 18 yeah. and saying, you know, there's a, you know, a rude language and stuff like that. Yeah, it's fascinating trigger warnings. And, you know, books don't really have them because you can sort of hint at things in the blurb anyway. I mean, the television, I guess given we don't sort of read TV listings anymore and things can just turn up in our living room unannounced and we can watch something because someone we used to see in Coronation Street is in it and then there's something in it that actually is uncomfortable for us. I I sort of can understand that you might just, you know, point people in the direction that there's, you know, um, tricky stuff coming up. But But, all sorts, anything can be tricky for anybody. That's the trouble. You know, the the thing that you might think is the tricky thing in the programme might not be. And in fact, there might be other things that um, provoke people's memories in a different way. But, you know, life is about having our memories provoked. And with the greatest of sympathy... I, the fact that it makes it worse and that most of the research suggests it either makes it worse or does absolutely nothing. How does it make it worse, by the way, or is that if, if you're not... Because it alerts you to it, and so you're in a heightened yeah. emotional state. And uh, most people, actually, unfortunately, can't quite still still stop themselves from watching it, even though yeah, they've yeah. been given the warnings. So that in that sense, they think it doesn't in any way sort of moderate people's emotional response to it. It can actually heighten people's emotional and, and, response And I suppose it, it, it sort of puts a ring fence around the your experience anyway that says, oh, your experience was so awful we don't as a culture talk about it this is something that we're not comfortable talking about it you probably should keep it to yourself and keep it locked away and part of all types of processes i think is having to sort of get through things and some of these things are so traumatic the events that my dear me you'll be reminded of them all the time and Mm. you'll be thinking about them every single day of your life and it doesn't matter whether they're on a television program or if they're not to me it is an affectation on behalf of the producers the broadcast whatever it is and it's not to do i'm this is nothing to do with the victims who of course i have utmost sympathy for but it doesn't work and I think that they should just be dropped. It's not often we give a proper definitive answer, yes, is it? Yes, that's not often I have one. <laughs> okay, well this is a good one to sort of follow on from that, I think. Don Palmer says, Brett Easton Ellis recently commented that if American Psycho was written today by a debut novelist, it would never be published. Do you agree that in recent years publishers have become oversensitive and the author as provocateur is a thing of the past? That's interesting. I mean, interesting. I can give a definitive answer there, which is no. I don't believe that at all. Uh, I I don't believe that it wouldn't get published. Um, 
I, but it always sounds good if you're Brett Easton Ellis to go, I tell you what, the thing that I wrote would not get published today, my friend, because I'm a little bit too dangerous for this modern world. I think that books are actually quite a good place to do something iconoclastic and, you know, against the grain and get published still. Would it sell? You're right. I do think, just to pause you there, I do think that books are the most the best place to be iconoclastic and to be you can do really exciting and difficult and provocative things in a novel that you just could not do on television and you can have really complicated and dark characters and nobody's going to give you the note like oh I think they need to be more likable you can have absolutely monstrous protagonists yeah. in novels no one ever gives you any notes in books yeah that's, I the, mean, that's, that's, that's the great that's... news they go listen this, this is the thing you want to write uh Listen, I think what he might be saying is it probably wouldn't sell as well. Maybe it wouldn't. Maybe culturally, we, we wouldn't take it to our hearts quite as much. But even that, I don't think is right. If you like like a proper antihero, some a horrific, you know, Patrick Bateman type, then you know there's a appetite for that. I don't see that publishing particularly is is shying away from oh, God, more I difficult areas. Are, you see, really? I, yeah, I do. I first of all, I, it should be said that American Psycho was very very controversial at the time. Yeah. I was I mean I thought it was a fantastic book and I think it's a, an incredibly moral book and I think it's a very misunderstood book and there were a lot of protests about it at the time. You're right in saying that a book could never be that big again to some extent. You know, books were like movies then. You know, you wrote a, a, a number 1 New York Times bestseller and it was like you just you know, you were on the top of the world and it was almost like having a sort of blockbuster opening and our culture is so much more atomized now and books just don't to some extent create those those events that idea of being a bright young thing the voice of a generation maybe you'd be in television something different anyhow but I do think that publishing is much more wary they're wary of their own staff I think many many you know people have said oh we can't possibly publish this book because you know many of the people working on this book in the publishing house at various different levels don't agree with what's in it well I there have been plenty of examples of, of that and I, again these are the sort of things that are affecting liberal um, workplaces mm -hmm. around the world many people don't publish things I think because they say oh we couldn't actually publish that it's very difficult it's very difficult for this book to find a publisher no I think there are many books that are regarded as too provocative I have to say in fiction probably less so yeah so um we're talking about non-fiction titles I think that maybe cover things like the sort of trans wars or um there have been far you know sort of things like Milo the kind of cultural mm -hmm. you know the sort of alt-right all those sort of books these books have caused a lot of controversy but in fiction I think you can be more um as you say you can be more provocative and you can do more extraordinary things and you can actually push the envelope a lot more and that's, that thing that I said is you in television they are constantly telling you yeah I you know I, I just can can we have a sort of hearts and hearts and mm. hugs pass that we don't we would just like this person to be more likable and the things that television people hate being told is that you know everyone has to really be likable and what people sort of love when in something like Secession was like all these people are absolutely terrible and you know what it's been a massive show and everyone's loved it so that what they writers often want to say is no they should be able to be dreadful dreadful people or villains or victims who have whose stories haven't been yeah. told yet or whatever they say but the idea that they should be likable is much more prevalent in television so I think you could still have a monstrous protagonist and I think you probably do I haven't read any recently but people can write in and tell us what the big sort of monstrous anti-heroes are currently in fiction I'd like to know No there's all sorts of great ones and funnily enough that the book I recommended at the start of the year Johnny Sweet's uh, The Kellaby Code that's a about an anti-hero I, I think that oh yes I saw I've got it now it's yeah. my next on my pile so yes um, I think that you are absolutely right television is far 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 more far more sensitive and far more sensitive. And by the way, I understand why. 
because television is in the corner of your room and it can be on without you inviting it in or your kids can watch it. Whereas a book, you've been to a shop, you've read the back of the book, you might have read a review of it, you've paid your money, you've taken it home. So books can be whatever they want to be. The same with comedians doing a live tour. You say whatever you want because people have gone out, paid money for the ticket, you know, got a babysitter, sat down and said, okay, I want to be entertained by you. When you're on television, I think there's sometimes you think there's certain material that's television wouldn't um, allow you to do and I understand why but I honestly think with publishing and you know all the books you talk about find publishers you know they just find different publishers and then you know if they find a market it's because they're good or bad but I I think books I mean I'm somebody uh, it will shock you to learn I, I love writing likable characters that's what I like <laughs> you know and I love watching things with likable characters so to me it plays into my hands so I've, it's not something I've ever had to come across but yeah I've yet to meet a book editor who wouldn't read American Psycho and just go, oh my God, this is an amazing piece of writing. And what our culture would now call the stuff that's problematic about it is what makes it brilliant and interesting and art and something that's worth reading. And I do think Brett Easton Ellis is probably wrong. I think he would definitely find a publisher. It might not find its same place in the middle of our culture as American Psycho did. But I don't think the book industry is, is in a bad place in terms of what it's happy to publish. Okay, this is a great one to finish on from Catherine Ward. After watching a recent episode of Pointless where someone couldn't hide their disappointment at their partner scoring 100, always my favourite, Richard, did you ever have to intervene in any onset arguments between unhappy pairings or have you heard of similar on any other shows? That's a good one. Oh, that is a good question. Yeah, you certainly, it's, um, you know, I always think that um, presenting duos are best and I think that that uh, contestant duos are best as well because instantly when people come on point, they say maybe they're married and you're thinking who's married well or they're <laughs> married. You think you're quite a lot older than she is. And you think, and yeah, and you met 12 years ago. Okay. Um, <laughs> So, you know, there's there's a little bit of judgment. By and large, on Pointless, we're incredibly lucky because you get such brilliant contestant researchers. And so, they, you know, it's very rare you have people on the show that you don't warm to, that you just think, oh, you're a bit off. But, yeah, you certainly get a thing where one partner will let the other partner down. Have I told the Lee Mack story before? Where, so Lee Mack came on Pointless Celebrities uh, uh, with the, the late, great Bobby Ball, who played his father yep. in no, Not Going Out. So Lee comes on, and Lee had come on because his kids loved the show, right? So he said, oh, I'll come on because my kids love it. Uh, and uh, it turned up, it was a big thunderstorm. It had taken him forever to get there. He turned up only about like 10 minutes before the show went on air. Uh, but he had his kids with him and um you know we said hi to the kids and blah 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 uh and so lee comes on he's here with bobby gets there uh and the uh question was um words in the it, words in the english language ending s-o-n so words ending son uh so okay so bobby ball steps up first on the first podium and says apple son <laughs> like okay all right bobby um I mean, where you got it from, I don't know. Anyway, the thing goes up 100. Uh, you go across the other podiums, low scores, low scores, low scores. You get back to Lee. He's already out on 100 points because Bobby Ball said Appleson. <laughs> he's he's back in his car five minutes later and uh, no. and, and and off home. It does happen. We had, we, we had the, the famous one that there's lots of clips of is this um, pair uh, who I think the question was, name a country whose name ends in two consonants. All right. So a country whose name ends in two consonants. Not that we were reaching for questions. Uh, and uh, this woman says Paris. I think she was a geography student as well. And her, <laughs> the the meme of her partner's expression is so brilliant 
which is, I've come here to win pointless. <laughs> it's a country with two consonants at the end, and you said Paris. And you're a geography uh, student. <laughs> and you're a geography student. And so you do sometimes think that is going to be a long car journey home. Ooh. The ones that I really feel it most, sometimes people come on with their boss. And you're like, come on, that's high tariff. Yeah. Uh, and if they get 100, you're like, that's not good. Or people come on with their father-in-law or their mother-in-law. And, you know, they just... You've got uh, instant dynamics, haven't you? Yeah, Whatever exactly. happens. And then you're like, oh, don't get a 100. And, it, you know, some hundreds are good hundreds. You know, someone goes out on a limb, takes a risk, but some hundreds are proper bad mm. ones. And, yeah, you do feel for people. And you, we have listened to the, the contestant team, very good after the show. And, you know, because they have to come back as well. It's very, very rare. I think we had twice ever that a couple didn't come back, I think. Twice ever. Wow. Uh, for, Just had some stuff to work out. Had some stuff to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, one was a married couple who decided not to come back. And you're like, oh, I, yeah, that doesn't. And even when we were watching them, you're thinking, Mm, okay. More dangerous than starting wife swapping. You just don't know where this journey is going to lead. Where, just, where, we're not going to. We're going to pull out now. And we're not going to do it. Yeah, exactly. But by and large, they're lovely people, and we look after them. And you, you can see it's, it's scary being on set and having a light shone on you and being asked a question that you know the answer to. Obviously, and yet, yeah, it, we could all do it. It goes out of your head. So it's um yeah. By and large, one is sympathetic, but yeah, there's there's a few friendships that you think, oh, this is not going to be. It's not ever going to be quite the same. <laughs> After this, is it? There's going to be just always something in between you. Nickel. And it's and, it, and it's not a pointless trophy. No. <laughs> okay, Catherine, I hope that answered your question. Uh, that's us done, I think. I think it is. Okay, well, we'll see you next week uh, yeah. for the main show, yeah, uh, where we'll Tuesday. be talking about a number of things, including Saudi money in Hollywood. In Hollywood, film washing. Film washing. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>